Esther is a crisis book. It is a drama, not a fiction, but of genuine fact. It is set on the stage of real history and gathers round actual persons. The purpose of the book is to demonstrate the providential care of God over his people. It is vital for believers of all dispensations to see this. Today, Dr. Bill Petrie will look at the providential care of God as demonstrated in the book of Esther. Romans 15.4 states, For whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning, that we, through patience and comfort of the scriptures, might have hope. Paul very clearly states the Old Testament was written for our learning. We are to learn patience, and we are to learn comfort, so that we can have hope. Any student of the Bible who fails to study and understand the Old Testament will not learn all they need to accomplish this important goal. In Romans chapter 5, Paul clearly tells us that tribulation works patience, patience works experience, and experience will work hope. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, Paul states, that all scripture is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. If we really believe what God is saying, would also include the Hebrew manuscripts. We must study these manuscripts with the understanding of right division. When we keep the correct dispensational setting with the correct people, we will have an effectual Bible study. The book of Esther will instruct us on truths about the non-intervention providential care of God. It is the book of Esther which will lay out for us how God operates through free will choices we all make. Amazingly, everything will be done without any intervention in the physical realm. The purpose of the book is to confirm the providential care of God over his people. It is vital to see this, for herein lies the significance and permanent value of this book. The great thing here is the fact of providential preservation. Providential is distinct from what we call the miraculous. We are meant to see providential overruling as distinct from supernatural intervening. The word providence comes from the Latin providio, which means that I see a thing beforehand. Pro meaning before and video meaning I see. The root meaning of providence is foresight. Foresight always engenders activity in correlation to that which is foreseen. Hence, providence has procured the meaning of activity arising from foresight. Strictly speaking, there is only one who has foresight, and he alone is able to act on the basis 
of foreknowledge, which arises from his foresight. Providence, in its one absolute sense, is the divine foreknowledge and the divine activity which arises. It implies that God alone has absolute power. It is this which we see confirmed in the book of Esther. The crisis about which the book is written is providentially expected and then providentially overruled just at the critical moment. No miraculous intervention is resorted to. All the events recorded are the outworking of occurrences in their natural sequence. Yet while there is no miracle recorded, the whole thing in its ultimate meaning is a mighty miracle. The mighty miracle whereby a sovereign God allows free will to take place and does nothing to influence or change it and still accomplishes the prepared outcome without the need for using any interference. This then is the lesson which this particular book written aforetime is to teach so that we can have comfort and hope in all of life's trials. We are to learn this lesson so that we can have patience in life's circumstances. It allows us to have a total dependency upon our Lord and Savior. It is this which explains why the name of God does not occur in the book of Esther. This non-mention of God in the story has been a problem for many. Martin Luther went so far as to say that he wished it did not exist. Many others have disputed its right to a place in the scriptures. However, I assert that if God had been specifically mentioned in the story, if the story had unequivocally expounded that it was God operating through providence, the dramatic force and moral impact of the story would have been reduced. We are meant to see in the typical outworking of events without breaching human free will and without suspending the everyday ongoing of human affairs, God's hidden power unsuspectedly but infallibly governs all things. Therefore, the central spiritual message of the book that amid the shadows, God stands keeping watch upon his own cannot be lost in the specifics. Esther will show clearly that God sees and knows and cares for his people. He may be out of their sight, but they are never out of his sight. Notice how God states this to Israel in Psalm chapter 121 and verse 4. Behold, he that keeps Israel shall neither slumber nor sleep. Now the book of Esther begins with a feast 
and a choice. Royal banquets on a massive scale like that which is recounted in chapter 1 of Esther were not rare among the Persians. Testimonials by ancient Greek authors leave us no doubt about this. Royal state seems to have reached its highest grandeur in the great Persian Empire, and sumptuous banquets were a noted feature in the life of the Persian court. Such a lavish feast and display as here depicted in the first chapter of Esther would be much to the taste of the vainglorious and ostentatious Ahasuerus, otherwise also known as Xerxes. The occasion of this huge festival gathering is most likely to have been a summoning together of all the chief men of the kingdom, and especially of the satraps, to contemplate upon the intended expedition against Greece. The king's order that Vashti either leave her women guests and cause a breach of royal etiquette among the women, or that she should come and immodestly display herself before a vast company of intoxicated revelers was a cruel outrage which would have disgraced for life the one whom the king should have protected, his wife. Hence, Vashti's rejection was audacious and fully justified. Without doubt, it would have a sobering effect upon the king and the high lords of the realm. Therefore, it is not surprising that when the king's high council of wise men came to judge the matter, they determined that Vashti must forfeit her royal diadem. These things at first glance seem far from having any connection, whatever, with the as yet undreamed of parallel, peril to the Jews which was to head up through the anti-Jewish hatred of Haman, who at this time has not risen to public prestige. Yet these things were being so overruled as to subserve the unsuspected divine preparation for that which was to come later. <clears throat> About four years slip away. Compare Esther chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, with Esther chapter 2, and verses 12 and 16. Between the end of chapter 1 and Esther's being elected queen, which is the principal happening in chapter 2, during this time, Ahasuerus has undertaken his expedition against Greece and has returned ingloriously frustrated. He is more disposed to turn his thoughts from uneasy war failures to the pleasures of the Seraglio. Esther, the Jewish orphan girl, daughter of the deceased Abihail and cousin of Mordecai, is now selected to become queen. 
Verses 7, 9, and 15 of chapter 2 leave us no doubt that Esther must have been a most beautiful young woman. Verses 9 and 15 also suggest a winsome nature. The process by which the selection was made was in full accord with Persian and Asian custom. Esther, Esther's Hebrew name was Hadesa, which means myrtle, while the Persian name Esther, which was given to her, means a star. We note that Mordecai instructed her not to make her Jewish parentage known in chapter 2, verse 10. Presumably, lest it should occasion prejudice or intrigue against her. That such prejudice could have been aroused against her is shown in chapter number 3 and verse number 4. Mordecai himself was employed in the service of the royal court. In chapter 2, verse 5, where he is first mentioned, we are told he is a resident in Shushan the palace. No one who was not connected with the royal service would have been permitted to reside in those jealously guarded precincts. In verses 19 and 21 of chapter 2, we see him fulfilling the regular duty at the king's gate. And in chapter 3, verse 2, we see him counted among the king's servants which served at the gate. In chapter 6, verse 10, we see that the king himself knew him as Mordecai, the Jew, that sits at the king's gate. Had not Mordecai been there on royal service, the palace guards would have summarily dispatched him on his refusing to obey the decree regarding Haman. Let's talk about Haman for a few minutes. Another five years have passed by the time we reach the middle of the third chapter. A new person, Haman, appears on the scene. Haman has risen in the king's favor to have become grand vizier of the realm. The king has even instructed that every knee shall bow to him. But while others bow the knee, Mordecai declines. Unlike the Persians, who esteemed their king as the very image of God, Mordecai will not yield to any man the adoration which belongs to God alone, the God whom he believes. He cannot yield any more than Daniel could to King Darius. Haman's fury and this results in the edict for the butchering of all the Jews in the Persian Empire on the 13th day of the 12th month. From the fact that Haman is actually designated the enemy of the Jews in chapter 8, verse 1, in chapters 9, 
verse 10 and verse 24, and from his words to the king about the Jews as a race, and from the fact that it was when he had learned Mordecai's Jewish nationality that he decided to make his revenge the occasion for a general anti-Jewish massacre. We infer that Haman was a hater of the Jews before ever Mordecai's refusal of homage had stung his pride. The awful decree for the liquidation of the Jews was duly proclaimed in chapter 3, verses 12 through 15. Chapter 4 of the book of Esther then records the grief and mourning of Mordecai and the Jews. Mordecai's appeal to Esther by Hetak, one of the king's chamberlains, and Esther's brave decision to risk her life in an appeal to the king. The risk arose from the Persian law that whoever entered unbidden into the king's inner court paid the death penalty. We see that in chapter 4 and verse 11. We also need to note, Esther had not been called in for an entire month, which most likely indicated a cool regard towards her. So the risk she ran was of the most serious kind. However, we see she was willing to take the risk, saying in chapter 4, verse 16, Go gather together all the Jews that are present in Shushan and fast you for me, and neither eat nor drink three days, nor night or day. I also and my maidens will fast likewise, and so will I go in unto the king, which is not according to the law. And if I perish, I perish. What a brave young woman Esther truly is. At this point in the history of the book, Providence of God is unmistakable. Mordecai's words, who knows whether you are come to the kingdom for such a time as this, are really the key to the whole book and reveal his sudden perception of the unseen anticipation underlying Esther's strange elevation to the throne. Furthermore, his words, if you altogether hold your peace at this time, then shall their enlargement and deliverance arise to the Jews from another place. Reveal Mordecai's unshakable faith in the God of his fathers and in the indestructibility of God's people. Esther's appeal to Mordecai for three days fast for her among the Jews is really a plea for prayer and a casting of herself on the mercy of God in the matter. Fasting in the Old Testament oftentimes is a symbolic or type form of prayer. On the third day, Esther enters the inner court 
and stands opposite the gate of the king's throne room so as to attract his notice. The king is sitting on his throne at the time, looking down the vista and through the open door where he surprisingly sees his beautiful, stunning wife. His extended scepter assures Esther that any breach of etiquette is excused. The king, then realizing that only some grave concern could have brought Esther, reassures her with the words, What will you, Queen Esther? It shall be even given to you, to the half of the kingdom. Esther then asks that the king and Haman should come to a banquet for them later that day. By having a banquet, which she knew the king loved, she would make the more certain of his favoritism toward her. When she exposed Haman and his sinister plot. Haman would thus be vulnerable as he would not be able to deny the truth of the accusation, nor would he dare to contradict the queen in the very presence of the king, nor would he get any opportunity of misrepresenting the matter to the king in the queen's absence. However, when the feast came, Esther, for unknown reasons, did not take advantage of the moment. But she promised to make her request known at another banquet to be given on the following day. Again, we see the providence of God displayed here. During that day, the gloating Haman caused the gallows to be prepared for Mordecai. And during that night, the sleepless king determined that the same Mordecai should be exalted before all the people. God's unseen care and foresight prepared the time for Esther to speak. Chapter 6 brings us a reversal of fortune. And it also brings about a new turn of events. The crisis, which has been providentially awaited, is now wonderfully overruled. With the skill that only God has, he that sits in the heavens turns the tables on the wicked and delivers his own people. Just as the psalmist states, the wicked are ensnared in their own devices. The king cannot sleep, and his night drags on. He calls for the chronicles to be read to him. He hears how a plot against his life was foiled through the timely action of Mordecai and is surprised to find out that Mordecai has not been rewarded. He resolves that Mordecai should be rewarded without delay. The night changes into morning. King Ahasuerus asks who is in the court and learns that Haman is there. Unknown to the king, Haman had come for the earliest possible interview with the king to obtain permission for the hanging of Mordecai. 
Ahasuerus asks Haman, what shall be done unto the man whom the king delights to honor? Haman, presuming that he himself is the man in the king's mind, and that he is the prospective candidate for still further preferments, swells with self-congratulation, and then makes the following proposal. Esther chapter 6, verses 8 through 9, records the words. Let the royal apparel be brought which the king uses to wear, and the horse that the king rides upon, and the crown royal which is set upon his head, and let this apparel and horse be delivered to the hand of one of the king's most noble princes, that they may array the man with all whom the king delights to honor, and bring him on horseback through the street of the city, and proclaim before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Haman's proposal lays bare his immeasurable egotism, his thirst for the praise of men, and his inconsequential idea of greatness. It is at this point that he hears the king say, Make haste! And take the apparel and the horse, as you have said, and do even so to Mordecai the Jew. We can almost see the subtle gleam pale from Haman's eyes. The swollen bubble of pride and arrogance suddenly bursts. We can see a sickening pale turn his heart cold. We can imagine that for a few age-long seconds, he stands dumbfounded before his royal master. Then he very slowly withdraws with laden footsteps to exalt Mordecai in the very way which he, Haman himself, had so stupidly proposed he that sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. The utter irony of it. Haman, through his own stupid conceit, has trapped himself into publicly exalting and parading the very man for whose death warrant he had come to apply. Or for, and for whom he had already presumed to prepare the gallows. Chapter 7 tells of Esther's second banquet to the king and Haman. It is a much-changed Haman who now sits uneasily at the royal board. His mind is all the more disturbed because his wise men, and his wife Zeresh have said to him, If Mordecai be the seed of the Jews, before whom you have begun to fall, you shall not prevail against him, but shall surely fall before him. However, Haman does not realize how quickly his end is coming. In the king's sleepless night, the exaltation of Mordecai and the chagrin of Haman 
and now the obvious goodwill of the king, Esther recognizes the control of God and knows the moment has come to speak. The king again asks her what her special request is, and he is amazed to learn it is a plea for her life to be spared. O oh, king, if it please the king, let my life be given me at my petition and my people at my request, for we are sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be slain, and to perish. Ahasuerus looks upon the lovely face and form of his wife and asks, Who is he, and where is he that durst presume in his heart to do so? Esther then replies, The adversary and enemy is this wicked Haman. It is at this moment the king sees through Haman's hypocrisy. Rising from the banquet, the king strides agitatedly into the palace garden. Haman, in a frenzy of cowardly terror, oversteps the bounds of etiquette and falls upon Esther's couch, pleading with her to spare his life. The king re-enters and finds him thus. He then speaks words which immediately cause the attendants to remove Haman with his face covered. The face covering being a Persian custom to indicate that a person was no longer fit to see the light. Without delay, Haman is sent to his doom. Before another sunrise sheds its light over Shushan, the corpse of Haman dangles aloft on the very gallows which he himself had caused to be made for Mordecai. The tree which Haman had selected was in the grounds of his very own house, according to chapter 7 and verse 9. And it was here he was made to swing before the horrified gaze of his own family. The wicked Haman foreshadows the man of sin, who was predicted to appear to take prominence in the midpoint of Daniel's 70th week. Haman is a type of the man of sin in six ways. First, in Esther 7, 6, Esther brands him as wicked Haman. It is also clear that the numerical value of the Hebrew letters which make up this title is 666 the number of Antichrist according to Revelation 13, 18. Second, Haman's power. With meteoric rise, he outranks all his confederates. The opening verses of chapter 3 tell us that his place was set up above the princes in the realm, and a royal decree was issued that every knee should bow to him. This foreshadows the beast of Revelation 13, which receives its power and eminence from the dragon. Third, Haman's pride. We can see him boast of his glory and riches to Zeresh and to his friends in Esther 5.11. We see his conceited exasperation when Mordecai withholds homage in Chapter 5, verse 13. 
We can see him planning to ride the king's own horse, clad in the royal apparel, wearing the crown royal, and being borne ostentatiously overhead amid the adulation of the people in chapter 6, verses 7 through 9. Haman is a forepicture of that coming man of sin, who, as Paul says, opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God. Fourth, Haman's hate. Four specific times he is designated as the enemy of the Jews. In chapter 3, verse 10. In chapter 8, verse 1. In chapter 9, verse 10. And verse 24. Five times he is called an Agagite. In chapter 3, 1 and 10. In chapter 8, verses 3 and 5. And in chapter 9, verse 24. Recent discoveries have shown that Agag was a territory adjacent to Medea. However, this word Agagite connects Haman with the Agagites mentioned earlier in the scriptures. Agag was king of the Amicalites in 1 Samuel 15, 8, who were descended from Esau, according to Genesis 36, 12. Amalek is always Israel's enemy, according to Exodus 17, 16. But there was to come a star out of Jacob and a scepter out of Israel, which should bring destruction to Amalek. It's Numbers 24, verses 17 through 20. Even as Paul says that Christ shall yet smite the Antichrist in 2 Thessalonians 2, 8, the coming man of sin will be the latter-day Haman. He will be history's supreme Jew-hater. Fifth, Haman's plot. He makes Mordecai's conscientious resistance the occasion for a contemplated annihilation of the whole Jewish race. With untruthful guile, he works toward this through his political power so that the Jews are plunged into great sorrow and suffering in chapters 3 and 4. The Antichrist, the evil prince of Daniel 9, will plunge the world and the Jews specifically into the great tribulation by a political betrayal, according to Daniel 9, verses 26 and 27. And last we see Haman's doom. While he is in power, he is indeed terrible, but he only lasts a few years. And his end is as sudden as it is ironic. One day he vaunts himself, the next day he hangs by his own rope. All his posterity perish with him, for in chapter 9, verses 7 through 14, we find Haman had ten sons who were hanged along with him. Just as suddenly and ironically will the coming Antichrist perish, according to 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 8. He who has overcome men by supernatural wonders will himself be overcome by a bigger wonder still. Moreover, 
as Haman had ten sons who perished with him. So the final form of Gentile government at the end of the present age is to be that of ten kings who reign for one hour through whom Antichrist works and who perish along with him, according to Daniel 7 and Revelation 17. Haman, then, is a grisly, significant figure. We can state with equal confidence that Mordecai is a foreshadowing of the faithful Jewish remnant, which will be preserved during the Lord's day to enter into the millennial kingdom. We can see this in four specific ways. First, his refusal to bow to Haman. When the king's servants asked Mordecai, why transgress you the king's commandment? He told them he was a Jew in chapter 3, verse 4. So that his refusal was clearly because of his Jewish faith. He would not yield to man that which is due God alone. Even as the faithful Jewish remnant during the Lord's day will not bow to the beast nor receive his mark upon them. Second, Mordecai typifies the Jews of the Lord's day in his bitter mourning, fasting, and weeping which becomes shared by thousands of other Jews and which foreshadows that preparation of penitence which will finally lead the Jews to look upon him whom they pierced and own him as their king. Third, he typifies the Jewish remnant in his marvelous deliverance as he was delivered so will his brethren be in the future. The seventh chapter of Revelation shows us the sealing of the Jewish remnant before the wrath of God is poured upon the earth. They are sealed and saved. Fourth, Mordecai foreshadows the remnant in his wonderful exaltation. The closing chapter of Esther shows him exalted above all his peers, made the grand vizier of Persia, and next to the king and queen. Even so, through the faithful remnant, will the Jews in Jerusalem take the supreme place among the nations in the coming kingdom of David's greater son, our Lord. Jesus Christ. I hope today's study has given you a greater appreciation of the Old Testament and why it's important to study the Old Testament. And hopefully it allows you to see that even using absolute free will, God is in control, never ever having to violate anyone's free will. Can you imagine being that sovereign where you don't have to do anything and everything still works the way you want it to work? What a great God we serve. Good day. And God bless.
We want to thank you for listening to this week's Differing Things podcast. If you would like to get more information about the Bible, please check out our website, www.beacon-ministries.org. Do not forget to join us next week for a new Differing Things podcast. Mm -hmm.